Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Peter Bodway. Peter manages strategy and partnerships for an innovative alliance of energy companies committed to reducing environmental impacts through collaborative R&D efforts. Peter worked for more than 20 years in Asia, building and investing in a variety of businesses. His most recent role outside of Canada was with the World Wildlife Fund, where he was the chief executive officer of WWF China, based in Beijing. Prior to that, Peter lived in Hong Kong for 15 years working in the technology industry. In this episode, Peter talks climate change and index insurance with Johanna Tesfamerian Tekeste. Let's get right into it. Go, Peter. So thanks, Al. Hi, my name's Peter Bodway, and I'll be your host of today's Rainforest Podcast. In today's podcast, we're doing something a little different. So we usually interview Albertans in the innovation ecosystem. But today, we've invited Johanna Tesfamerium Tekeste from the International Research Institute for Climate and Society at Columbia University in New York. Now, the original plan was to meet Johanna at the Inventures Conference in Calgary and do the recording at the event because Johanna was actually coming to the event to present. But the event's been postponed, as you may know, to June 2022. So she graciously accepted to go ahead with the interview remotely. So firstly, thanks, Johanna, and welcome to the Rainforest Podcast. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's really great to be here. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with the International Research Institute for Climate and Society at Columbia. So can you just give us an introduction to what the Institute does? Yeah, so the IRI, we call it IRI, and that's, I guess, the abbreviation I'm used to, but the International Research Institute for Climate and Society sits under the Earth Institute at Columbia University, which is now the Climate School. That's a new also school that has been opened, I guess, post-COVID, but that has been a long process for Columbia University to formulate that climate school. But IRI has been around for a very long time, way before I joined, obviously. But the mission of the Institute is to enhance society's knowledge of climate information and also providing, we develop forecasts. But climate information is, is something that we have been talking about most of the time. And people say climate crisis, but how do you package information? How do you make sure that the most vulnerable communities get access to this information, stakeholders, decision makers? So we dabble in the research and applied science in, in all the various facets of what can climate information be used for to mitigate climate uh, risks. So that has been one of the main focuses. And we do a lot of educational side of things too, capacity building for MET offices, especially the meteorological offices within the Global South Nations, and also educational material and information packets, a lot of training. So we're very much a traveling bunch of uh, people. So I call us the traveling sisterhood crew. So we travel around the world doing a lot of amazing educational platforms uh, for people that are in need of climate information. And the most vulnerable are definitely the people that we target. So it's a, it's a great institution. But I work within FIST, which is the financial instrument sector within IRI. So we have different departments. We have the data library, which we house a lot of climate variables so people can access. It's open source. We also have climate scientists, obviously. We have various projects and departments, but the financial instrument sector, 
works on more of the financial tool development and index insurance projects and also forecast-based financing. Wow, that's a, so, yeah, there's a lot going on here. A lot. Yeah, yeah, we're a busy institution. <laughs> <laughs> we're a very busy. Yeah. So let's talk a little yeah. bit about what you do in your research. So, you know, because it's weather-based index insurance with the Financial Instruments Group and designing insurance for extreme drought, right? That's where I'm, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think the the project, first of all, is mostly also integrated within a lot of UN organizations and W a major partner that we have. I think weather-based index insurance, a lot of people say, what's the difference? Like, what is the insurance? But why not a traditional insurance? Weather-based index insurance takes up satellite information and designs an index that will capture the most vulnerable extreme droughts that, you know, communities face. But What's different about weather-based index insurance versus traditional is the insurer doesn't have to go to the field to check if you had loss. If anything, we're actually motivating these small household farmers to have uh, incentives to create, for example, buy drought-resistant seeds or buy fertilizer, which means if there's a drought that happened and you took smart decisions, we want to enable that and not have the insurer come and say, oh, you didn't have loss, so you don't get a payout. The payout is formerly based on satellite data. But also the cool thing about this project is there's a co-design and co-generation process that we are taking up, meaning we have to center the people that are most vulnerable at any of at any of our project center, right? So they are the core of our system. So we do field work where we ask our farmers their their bad years and what they've been facing and we tell them what we're designing and the years that they would have paid out so it's a very collaborative effort and a lot of the times i've even seen farmers calculate their own index and say we should have had a payout where is our payout <laughs> so it's great it's, it's it's great so if i understand correctly you have you know so a farmer in in the middle of mozambique and all of a sudden if there's a drought so if i understand correctly they almost don't even have to apply for the actual Grant or funding they do. from they they, they do. do yeah mm-hmm. or so but, so the, but based the, on satellite data they will know that oh these guys have been more impacted or less impacted so they can actually you don't have the insurers going to the field I, I just find that very interesting so, so how does that yeah work? so the insurers are part of the collection of data if anything the insurers know the years that we would have had a payout but they're not going to go into the field to understand if there was a loss and then they would say oh you had a loss hence you'll have a payout it's not based on yield. It's based on smart decisions that they make. But if the satellite says they had a drought, they deserve a payout. That's just the the collaboration that we have. But also the timing in which we target is probably the most sensitive timing. So we scientifically understand the 10 day or like 40 day periods in which the crop is most vulnerable. So it's probably the germination stage that the plant, the crop needs water and also the tasseling phase. But in between that time, if you didn't have water, you really wouldn't care, right? But so we target also the very specific timing. So the insurance is also comfortable knowing they're not covering the whole season, but only specific parts of, of the rain season that the crop needs water. So and the, and the good thing about it is, A, it's a small, small farmer initiative. So it's definitely for small household farmers, which are the majority within sure. the African continent. If we think of it, they're the majority. So democratically, they should be the ones we, we should be catering to the most. But yes, there's a sign up sheet. WFP does a lot of the feasibility studies to understand if it's they have these extreme droughts, but we tackle also extreme droughts. So what we're talking about is the one in five, right? So one in five years of drought. So we're not 
saying you had a dry time, so you get a payout. It's we're tackling the most extreme droughts within the past 30 years. That could almost wipe them out in essence, exactly. right? That can wipe out these exactly. farmers. So, so I mean, so when you say you get the voice of the farmers, because when you're designing this, you're out there, you're going into the field. And I guess, because we're talking always about innovation, right? So this is sort of, so in a way, this is customer discovery. You're going out there and understanding what does the customer actually need? So how does that happen? Are you out in the villages talking with the farmers and understanding really their process, yeah, right? Yeah, so we go, we take one of those uh, trucks into the into the village. And obviously that is probably why we do this work because we're so passionate. And once you meet the people that are actually facing the grunt of the climate crisis, it makes you even want to do more. But the main concept of the, the field work is to do participatory processes. And we create some form of participatory design that is done to solicit information from farmers to understand what have been the most extreme years that you have faced in the past 30 years. And we go back to the 80s just because our satellite information is back to the 80s. So we ask them, let's, let's, let's play a game. A, we explain what insurance is and give them, you know, a whole process where we say, do you want to buy insurance? If yes, and then they take their card. If they don't, they don't want to take insurance and they have their card. We draw the dice. Obviously, there's one color dice. We have five of them, four are green and one is red. And somebody will randomly pick out if it's a good year or a bad year. So if you paid for insurance and you had other, you know, drop resistant seeds, we explain to them what insurance is, right? And I think a lot of the times, Obviously, insurance has a bad rep depending on where you are, right? Because there's probably been someone who can't went there to scam them somehow. Got stuck. Yeah. And, yeah but we yeah, try to yeah. explain to them what is the purpose of this. And then finally, within the participatory process, we ask them what are the worst years that they faced, right? What are the years you were most vulnerable? And we'll bring in information such as maybe there was an election that year. Maybe some farmers will say, my, my daughter got married that year. So I remember because, you know, we didn't enough to feed ourselves. Some families will say, I couldn't take, send my kids to school that year because of how much financial burden we had. So there's all these stories that come up and we allow the farmers to tell us these years and they have group discussions. So it's focus groups. So they discuss, so you have the elders, you have the younger people. We also make sure we have women in there. So it's it's a very community-based information collection or data collection. And we use open data kit forms such as Kobo, Toolbox. We're also trying to design a, a WhatsApp-based information collection as well to ensure that the farmers give us all these databases. So they also rank the years. They tell us, well... These are my worst years. Or this is the least worst year. So they rank them in one to eight, one to 10. And it's it's actually a very vibrant and dynamic perspective to see them actually tell us when they've been the most vulnerable. It's interesting in that because can you tell me about sort of one thing that you learned when those farmers, because now you're out sort of talking with these rural farmers who really face a different paradigm, right? If, if, if a drought happens, they can go bust, right? And literally, like you say, people don't eat when they, when they have these issues. What are some of the things you said, wow, there was an aha moment there where we learned something and that, that changed our, our insurance product. I mean, obviously they're informing how the product should be designed. So what are some of the you know, most interesting things you learned in that field work? I think the, the main, I think for me personally, I can't speak for, for the institution, but for me, I think the main thing I'm, I've learned is the fact that even this insurance projects are band-aid projects. And I call them because we're mitigating the symptoms of what is happening. 
But in reality, the droughts are getting more frequent. So we're not talking about one in five anymore. We're actually tackling things that are more frequent and it's uh, getting there at a speed of lightning almost that it feels like. But there has to be a holistic approach in how we tackle the climate mitigation process. And farmers are willing to do anything. At that point, if they know a drought is going to happen, they need to be able to get information. I think the main aha moment probably is understanding that the Met Office, the meteorological office needs to have a hands connection with the farmers so that there could the be local ones. Okay. And, they're, and they're part of our process. So they're part of our design. They're part of the stakeholders. They're, they're, pro- they're actually part of the design team. So the design process of the index also has a whole other uh, collaborative effort. But from the farmer's perspective, it's, a, farmers are extremely intelligent because their rain gauges everywhere. They will calculate the rain gauges every day and tell you, yes, so based on your formula and your model, we should be getting you know, a payout this year. They will actually hone down on, on the platform itself. So a, an educational aspect of climate mitigation is essential. If you're not doing capacity building, training, and transferring all the knowledge you will have this gap where people say, I don't know why I should purchase it, even though they could probably really use it, right? So this capacity building training effort needs to take place 100%, where farmers need to be able to understand the process from beginning to end. And they will have a lot more buy-in. And once you have their buy-in, I think you're... you're, Yeah, because insurance is in a way essential for survival longer term. They understand that, right? So yeah, I I, I guess that's interesting because... so. You want the meteorological offices involved and the farmers are out in a way validating almost what the meteorological groups are saying. So can I ask, I mean, can they use these these climate forecasts to take some early action? So in other words, even preventative actions in a way. So as an example, the model forecast drought in this part of the country. So how can index-based insurance go into action early or what does it do to go into action early? So that's actually fascinating. This is like one of the early projects we've been working on. We started this project in Malawi, but it's called forecast-based financing. So we started to design these financial tools that allows decision makers at very high-end decision makers to look at the forecasts. So we develop a flexible forecast that goes back into the 80s. And we give them an understanding of this is what the forecast says, and we allow them to choose their triggers and exits. So we allow them to say, when would you like the forecast to trigger? Meaning like how extreme of events are you trying to capture within the drought space? And we also like to compare that to vulnerability data. For example, how many people were vulnerable at that time, whether it be through the IPCC reports or other vulnerability metrics, even farmer bad years right now, since we're going into the farmers, we can collect that data and say, well, farmers definitely recorded these years. Does your forecast relate to this ground information? So should you take action? So we allow the decision makers to use this tool to do their contingency planning, right? So they look at the the time that they trigger. They say this is a low severity, medium severity, high severity event. Make your decision based on that. And then there's also these SOPs, right? The regular processes that they take, such as irrigation systems and whatnot that are more frequent. So they can also decide where their finances go and also what other early actions they can take because the forecast has enabled them to get some information. So there's there's always that trick where we say, the forecast is always great 
a month before the three month period time. Absolutely. So you, yeah. <laughs> but there's the, you have to take your own risk. If let's say three months before the season, you see that there's inkling and you, you want to take that initiative, you can. So we, we have a three month lead time to our forecast that we develop. So we create tools for different partners to be able to understand this and package climate information and say, what happens if I make this decision? Is yeah, that- I know that because it's in a way is when it gets to those large scale issues, you end up with the multinationals coming in, whether it's, you know, the IBMs of the world, I think have bought the data network or the weather network. So yeah. you can see where data, the weather data is becoming critical to yeah. in some ways, some of these multinationals. And I want to explore that a bit specifically around food because yeah. You know, when I think of Coca-Cola, they purchase about 5% of the world's sugar. So for them, a steady supply of sugar for corn syrup is key. And it's really the lifeblood of the business. Same thing with Mars and and cocoa or cacao, right? So how, I guess, usually the interest of these farmers or the of these large corporates is to support the farmer. They want them to use the right fertilizer, the you know, the seeds, make sure that they can maintain supply. But are these large corporates now looking at these types of models to then help the farmers? Because again, I mean, Coca-Cola sources sugar everywhere in the world, right? Every time there's a bottling plant in any country, they ha- you know they don't want to be bringing sugar in from a thousand miles away. They want to have the sugar nearby. So is that similar? Are they involved in some of these activities? So I think this project I wasn't involved in, but there is like the Nespresso version of things because we have done a few projects on coffee where people will be interested in, you know, empowering small household farmers to have buy-in within the larger market of coffee. I'm sure there's a bunch of other things, but I think the, we, I haven't been in any of those projects where there is big corporations that want to come in. And I think I, I'm glad I don't don't have those discussions to make just because for small household farmers, I think once you introduce this big market, right, it's it's not even about the, the way you produce things anymore. It's about entering into the market at a faster pace at the scale. Scale becomes then the, the main question for a lot of the, the driver. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And, and I think the way a lot of these our projects have been initiating is we want the farmers to, yes, start maybe adding sorghum or soy or different things that the market might need. And you allow to have that collaboration with the small household farmers to say, what if you give this piece of your land into soy and not necessarily maize, but you have a market that is opening up, right? For example, in some countries, we'll have beer companies that want, you know, different crops now. And they say, well, yeah, yeah, what, what if we collaborate with small household farmers? So it becomes a conscious approach. So once like also these these like bigger markets are getting into a more conscious approach of opening up a market space for small household farmers, where we'll give you uh, a space within the market if you, you know, if you sow this crop instead of your regular crop. That so you it's more localized, year. right? It's, it's more localized. Localized, yeah. And also it gives the, it empowers the small household farmer as opposed to the like what we said, the market being the driving force, which then can create this overproduction and overexploitation and over everything, which we see with cacao, for example, where now you have heavy deforestation happening within West Africa just because people need land to keep producing all this. And and I think the, obviously there's an economic question about are we systematically just you know overdoing it which i think is more than enough to go around but that's another discussion for another that's day. another yeah but it's always the question of you know how exactly exposing small farmers to a global i mean 
Alberta is in the commodity business in some ways. And, you know, we do see the impacts of a global impact of a global commodity shift in price, et cetera. So small scale farmers are even more impacted. Right. So it's fully appreciate that. Yeah. So a question to you, Johanna, I guess. So in 10 years time, I mean, when you look forward, how do you see what will be the sort of the biggest impact of weather based index insurance on the work you're doing? How, what do you see the market changing and being in 10 years time? So. Well, I'm, I think I have to be optimistic, but I'm also a pessimist at heart. I think sometimes, obviously, with the trajectory that we're going, we have put our hands of climate mitigation on the hands of leaders that might not really fully understand that we need to have actionable items right now. I would hope that by that time, the in, the insurance game will be a steady purchase that people, small household farmers can make. But there would be enough distribution of production and wealth over these communities that that would not be the primary source of their savings or the safety net that they would have, right? Which means I would hope to see farmers doing a lot more with their land. They would have irrigation systems. They would have fertilizers at easy access. They would have drought-resistant seeds that they can use. And it's not something that they would have to opt out of just because. So having those options, I think, would be great. But I think the way weather-based index insurance can go is, A, it could scale to tap into majority of the farmers that we have in Africa because we are the most vulnerable. So it makes sense to have this kind of access to an index insurance. And I would also love the insurance system to change a little bit just because it shouldn't gear with there's a little bit of money to make for these small insurance companies. By the way, these insurance companies are local, so they're not coming from outside. They're local in-country insurance. They shouldn't also be driven on making a little bit of money because it will get subsidized by the government in some countries, which is great. But it shouldn't be how do we make money? It should be on how do we make sure the safety of our farmers, right? So there should be a collaboration of financial incentive from governments to help their small households, small farmers, empower them so that there's, there's a build. And I think once small household farmers are at a place that they feel comfortable and that they don't have all these risks to mitigate, we're going to see a lot more development, right? And also sustainable development at that of a country and of, an, of a nation. Because if your farmers are developing at a good rate, your, your country has something to eat and your economy is going to go very high, right? Yeah, we always, yeah, I think we always forget, and especially in the West where, you know, there's the numbers change, but 590 million farmers globally supporting the 7 billion of us, right? Yeah. So one farmer feeds 14 exactly. of us. So, you know, and and they really only have 30 or 40 seasons if they plant that one, you know, at a time. There's not much room for experimentation if things go wrong, yeah. you know, to get wiped out. So it's it's to create an insurance product that is, you know, capable of supporting them. So do you see it then more of a because it's interesting. One thing you said, it's not necessarily a for-profit activity. So it has to be both private insurance with the government collaboration. In the end, it's about sustainability of the farmers, right? Because <laughs> without, you know, if you don't insure them, they will exactly. go bust. So yeah. do you see it as a collaboration? Yeah, I would love for it to be a collaboration. I would even say it should be less privatized and more public. Because I think the people need to have more access to understand what are their financial incentives, their financial backing. They need to have a financial system. Right. There needs to be a financial infrastructure also built for farmers, which we don't really have that discussion most of the time. But the, I think the main thing that I would love to see is, is 
A, we need to figure out these extreme droughts, right? Where are they happening? Yeah. And like I said, it's like, well, index insurance at some point is also not going to be feasible because what insurance company is going to want to cover longer periods of time or even yeah. have you pay out every other year where that's not really a, a way for them to want to have be part of these um, initiatives. So in 10 years time, I hope these kind of projects don't disappear just because of how frequently the droughts are happening and it's not really a good business for an insurance company to want to do business where they have to pay out their clients every year or every other year. Well, it has to be sustainable for them exactly. too. That's why the collaboration. So I think what's happening is also we're collecting a lot of data, right? Historically, even in the past five years of time that I've been doing this project, we are seeing the rapid change in terms of which areas are becoming more vulnerable, right? And which areas it's becoming actually not feasible to do index insurance at all because it's just too frequent of droughts, right? So that's uh, the conversation. These should be in a world forum conversations we should be having to say. So what happens to the communities that are just entering into a drought area? Uninsurable. That was not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Do you now move people to a new location or do we actually start facing the, the conversation? So do we actually start having these real discussions about what is the source of the problem and how do we change the problem? And I think the more I interact with them, I think there's the more I interact with these projects, it feels like we're on the brink of a very systemic revolution. And I think climate is going to be at the center of this revolution now, because I think we're food security is probably a huge, a huge driver for a lot of the well, things. It is, so yeah, food, water, anything, energy. It taps into all of our societal conversations that I think we need to see it as a, as a chronic illness that we're under. But weather-based index insurance, I always say, is, is great to, for, the, for the meantime, but definitely not a futuristic thing. So in 10 years' time, hopefully they will exist just because we figured out our climate issues. So you know, farmers will be happy to pay insurance to cover themselves for the year and for the season. But yeah, we, we definitely need to, it, I think it will open up even bigger discussions once, once we see it. But scale is also another thing. Wow. Well, if, I got to say, Johanna, so, you know, this is, this is great. So if, if, if listeners want to know more about the International Research Institute for Climate and Society or your research, what should they do? What should they do? Yeah, please go to iri.columbia, so iri.columbia.edu, and you can find everything that the institution does, and you can also find me there, so you can just search my name in that little search button on top. There's a lot of other projects that I'm working on. This is uh, the Weather-Based Index Insurance is led by Dan Osgood, who's the lead of, he's the research scientist of the financial instruments team. But please feel free to contact us. I'm more than happy to connect. We're always looking to connect with amazing people doing great things in the world. Great. And your intention is to come to Calgary next year during the Inventures event, correct? That's yes. your, you're going to be slated for next year? Yes, I have. I was actually supposed to present a very avian flu-based climate connection in Vietnam and poultry in Vietnam for one of the projects that I'm working on for this. So, yes, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm I would love to come to Calgary next year. I think that would be exciting. Great. Well, well, I look forward to meeting yeah. you then when you come. So yeah, yeah. So Johanna, I do want to say thanks for your time. Fascinating discussion. You know, could have went on. You know, forever. <laughs> go on much longer on this because there's many different facets. But again, thank you for thank your time. You. Thank you for having me. And for those listeners, if you do like the podcast, please subscribe. And thanks for listening. If you haven't already. 
visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Community Now Magazine. Engage, inspire, educate together. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>